Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. Here we interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. This might be a different voice than you're used to hearing. I am, in fact, not Andrei Kerenkov. I am Daniel Bashir. I'm another editor here at The Gradient, and I will be hosting today's episode. I'm really excited for today's episode, where I'll be interviewing Greg Yang. Greg is a research scientist at Microsoft whose work focuses on understanding the behavior of deep neural networks. He's been the primary developer of something called the Tensor Programs Framework that seeks to understand and reason about large neural networks. This framework basically provides a theoretical underpinning for hyperparameter transfer as a way to tune large models and resulted in something really exciting called mu transfer that just came out recently. I'm, again, very, very excited to talk to him. I think he does some really fascinating research, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So, Greg, thank you for joining us today. You're a scientist at Microsoft Research. Our readers and listeners might know you for your Tensor Programs work or the recent mu transfer technique for tuning the hyperparameters of large neural networks that you introduced. I think that made pretty big news. Before we get into that work, I do want to start just a little bit earlier. So I'd love for you to tell me a bit about how you got into AI in the first place and what your path looked like to the research you're doing today. Right. Uh, yeah. So so funnily enough, I, um, I the reason I kind of dove into AI was because uh, during college, I took some time off to be a DJ and producer of uh like electronic music so at the time it was uh like dubstep it was a 2012 so like dubstep you know skrillex uh wow. yeah these like superstars and they were like playing stadiums uh you know of people and yeah i want to i want to be on stage and like you know jumping around like hyping people up like that was like like uh, that would be a fucking dream but um but uh yeah so so i i i essentially after uh sophomore year i took some time off to pursue that um uh, but the the side effect you know coming back to the the main question side effect was that was at the time to kind of think about my life it's kind of i think the effect is probably similar to how you know like during the pandemic people a lot of people reconsider their life because they had this kind of time where they actually paused for a second and you know had to had time to reflect on several things and I think the effect is very similar for me at that time. And so I, I got to read a lot of um, books, uh, like some like consider some philosophical questions, but also like like a wider array of things like, you know, from like quantum physics to like, you know, question of free will, you know, where like just like really deep mathematical questions like uh, where it's from set theory to algebraic geometry. Um, so, so I just read a lot of things and I essentially concluded that I want to make uh, AGI happen. Uh, so, so that is, is a wild kind of a journey to that point, but uh, that's essentially how it happened. And um, yeah, so, so then I decided, okay, to make AGI happen, you probably need a lot of math because math is like the, the, the language underlying everything essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, at the time, you know, I'm, I would say I was pretty good at math. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I took the Math T five class at uh, Harvard, which is like, uh, I guess it's like the famous like hard, uh, hardest. Math That's a class. pretty infamous class. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I was good at math, but it's it's kind of like, I think just being in the system for so long, uh, it makes you kind of numb to the pleasure of doing math and and uh, taking some time off actually like let me recover that sense of joy. Of doing math so so I, I realized that this is like a really wonderful thing uh that you know you can just entertain yourself by just thinking about math all day um but also you know like this this enthusiasm combined with like in my my prediction that you know for agi or any really hard technical questions you need a lot of math i just got to reading like all the the basics from the top like you know like foundations like set theory logic uh, and all the way, you know, down to, I guess, algebra, topology, differential geometry, analysis, like this kind of, these kind of topics kind of from the book. And I, that really solidified my understanding of uh, all these kind of different subjects. And 
I kind of asked her like like a concrete but even but kind of a hypothetical goal uh at the time was I should read enough and know enough to like hold a conversation with a uh, like an average mathematician for 30 minutes and and like contribute you know like non-trivially to the conversation and I would say like I kind of more or less achieved that uh by the end of it and so so yeah so that that kind of like gave me a really solid foundation uh for today where I think you know like I think it's no secret that you know for even for a typical researcher you know in machine learning but in really any field like a fear of math is kind of a real thing uh like people can be turned off uh from you know just like looking at like this like random symbols and like don't know what mm-hmm. to do uh with them uh and just like not having that block is uh, actually a really powerful thing especially for research yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, first, it's just really, I think, interesting and inspiring that kind of story, how you were um, at one point interested in doing dubstep music. That's that's pretty incredible. Um, I'm kind of curious how that fascination came about in the first place. But um, also to what you just said about this idea of mathematics as like a barrier to feeling like you can really jump in and understand what's going on, even with people, for example, who work at the company where I work, who I see doing just incredible engineering and research work, you know, working with large language models and all of that. I spoke to one of them in person just last week and he was like, you know, anytime I see math, I'm like, oh no. And I was just like, you're doing this insanely impressive work that I think a lot of people couldn't even conceptualize doing. And so it was just wild to hear that from him. And I, I get the sense, you know, that you're you're pretty passionate about trying to remove this as a barrier. Like I know on your Microsoft research page, you even have a guide for people on how to read through tensor programs and are like, you know, I've really refined the presentation yeah. later on. So this is how you might go about actually getting something out of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, kind of we're now kind of jumping ahead a little bit uh, talking about presentation that. Presentation was not something I really focused on early on. You just, you know, you were just like learning things, try to internalize and grok basic knowledge. Uh, presentation is something like kind of later on I realized, okay, even if I grok it, and but but if I write it out and nobody can understand it, then that doesn't help anybody. So so that's like something like a a skill that I later uh, learned later on, kind of, yeah, I guess like you know through hard lessons. Uh, just like I guess you know, I think probably my first papers are probably pretty hard to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, just over time, I learned okay, this is not yeah, this is not helping the community. So so gradually, you kind of uh, picked up the the right uh, uh, presentation skills. And mm-hmm. also, I think there's an interesting point here. Also, that I mean, I'm I'm coming from a math background, and I think in general, but maybe like it's just a Harvard math thing. But uh, I feel like in general, mathematicians uh, have uh, their training have less emphasis on uh, like presentation. I, I don't know what exactly is the reason, but compared to like a typical computer science, uh, you know, student or researcher, uh, I feel like there's, um, maybe for various reasons, like mathematical concepts are already pretty hard to, to present. Um, so maybe like they just give up. Uh, but definitely it seems like in general, there's less uh, emphasis in their training. And, uh, you know, you go to like a typical math talk, uh, you'd be lucky if you understand like 10%. But uh, for for CS, you know, you expect to understand a good chunk of it and at least like the main idea and stuff like that. Um, anyway, that's just something interesting that, that, that I thought. Like, I think like especially I see this uh, coming from my background and transitioning into machine learning and more CS oriented area. I think I've had that observation as well, actually, when I was an undergraduate. I did a joint major in computer science and math. And so because of that, I had to do a semester each of a math colloquium and then a computer science colloquium. You know, you're just kind of coming every week to listen to speakers talk. Perhaps part of it might just be that computer science is in general a little bit closer to like an application you can observe in the everyday. Right. And a lot of, at least I think, the really, really fascinating, interesting things in math can be very theoretical. I was really a geek about number theory back in high school. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, that's yeah. definitely one of those fields where people right. are often like, this is no applications. Um, I mean, there's cryptography and all, but it's still, it's still yeah, pretty yeah, theoretical. Yeah. And I just remember yeah. that stark difference. You know, I did 
the computer science colloquiums first. And every talk, even if some of them were a little bit out of my domain, you know, people were coming in and presenting about programming languages when I hadn't taken that class and all of that, I was still able to get something out of it. But I remember the very first math colloquium talk. I can't quite remember the subject, but I just remember I really just totally lost what was going on in that presentation after about five, 10 minutes. And that didn't feel great. You yeah, know, yeah. I was like, okay, I've, I've taken analysis. Yeah. I've taken abstract algebra. I, I feel like I have a yeah, basic yeah, grip yeah, yeah. on on mathy things. But I, I just really right. couldn't follow what the speaker was going after that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like the, the mathematicians kind of depends on where you are. But like if you're like, you know, at the cutting edge of uh, algebraic geometry or like category theory, these things are so far off from like the typical undergraduate curriculum that, yeah, you'll be you'll be pretty difficult. For, like just the material, like not just talking about presentation, but just material, the motivation, why the problem is even worthwhile. That would be pretty hard to communicate uh, to, to an mm-hmm. undergrad. Like even, you know, you, you, know, you look at like... Uh, uh, like, uh, like, uh, I guess for, from us, uh, last theorem, you know, the, the famous, uh, proof by Andrew Wiles, I mean, you can't understand the, the theorem statement, but like, like the, the proof is wild, like it's really wild. And you, like you had to go through all these like, uh, modular forms, uh, and, uh, these elliptic curves. And there's like, these are, you know, topics that probably like most undergrads won't, won't touch, you know, and yeah you know if i give a talk on flt okay i'll I'll motivate by talking about what the problem is like here's a theorem you ought to prove and then i don't expect anything from the audience after that it's just like the 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 proof is just so wild i mean which is really like you know a a scientific uh tour de force but uh but just it's so hard to communicate to an uh, average audience that uh yeah i I mean i I wouldn't fall in my depiction for that but 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 to be fair like i think you know I, i like even in areas where you could communicate for, uh, effectively, uh, there's often you know lack of effort from from the mathematician to do so. That's fair, yeah. And I think another thing you you brought out there was really being at the cutting edge of any research area. And I know this is a thing in computer science as well, right? You take your first algorithms class, and then you later on learn, hey, we've only gotten to like the 1950s or something here. And then you take your first graduate level <laughs> algorithms yeah, yeah. class and you're still like not even at the 2000s right. yet. So it's like you have a yeah, lot of yeah, the basics, yeah, yeah. but there's still so much yeah. that's gone on after that. And you just realize like making yeah. a jump to what people are actually talking about at conferences today, like stock or something. There's just so much that's right. happened in between. And I remember... Right, trying right, to look right. at papers from those conferences from the first time and was just like, I have no idea what's going on here. And I went to my algorithms yeah, yeah, professor yeah. and he was like, yeah, you should really start like 30 years back when computational learning theory was like first introduced <laughs> and maybe work your way from there because right. otherwise this is just not going to make any sense. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is like uh, all part of the motivation for me to dive really deep into you know, all the mathematical treatises like these are all kind of like the uh, time-tested books for, you know, educating students on, on uh, math. So I stuff like, you know, uh, like uh, some of the books I like, you know, the basics one, you know, include, you know, like uh, Naive Set Theory by Helmholtz and uh, Linear Algebra done right. That's a great book. Uh, yeah, this is, these are all like fantastic books. And, and yeah, like I said, I don't want to really like uh, have a moment where, you know, I, I'm kind of scared off by by some, you know, like really uh, remote mathematical topics. So I like read kind of everything. Uh, and yeah, in particular, I, I dug really deep into like category theory and uh, homotopy theory because at the time the, the homotopy type theory was making some noise. I've I heard, heard of that. that. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was like some unification of uh, type theory and logic and uh, homotopy theory. And it was a uh, 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 well, he's pr- promoted by this, uh, I forgot his name, uh, but, but he passed away since then. Uh, this guy, I think, at IS, uh, who won the fields in uh, homo- for homotopy mm. theory works. Um, but yeah, so I was pretty knee deep uh, into homotopy theory, homotopy type theory uh, at some point. Um, but, but yeah, my point is just uh, I kind of read like everything. Uh, and 
and I really enjoyed it. It's like probably like one of the best uh, periods in my life because it's just like purely, it's like pure self improvement mm-hmm. in some sense. Like you, it's measurable. Like you're reading and you're like literally absorbing knowledge, and and I mean I, I'm not claiming that you know I remember everything from from the uh, from the period. Like I, I don't remember everything I learned from that period, but uh, you you gain a like certain kind of like internalize some of the like the main mm-hmm. intuitions, and it's such that like you can kind of go back and recall any results that you need. Like you know where to look for it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. 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 So so I just ended up kind of like. Essentially, I spent, well, I mean, along with DJing, I spent like, you know, like uh, three and a half years off uh, taking taking off from school. Yeah. And then eventually, uh, I, I actually came back twice. I came back for one semester and then I went away and then I came back again. And um, yeah, and then, and then it got even wider from there. Like, I don't know, my life is kind <laughs> of ridiculous. Uh, but uh, so so when I came back, I was in the math department and uh, I got a uh, so, so in the math department at Harvard, there's um, you get assigned a academic advisor, uh, but it's like a random assignment. They're just there to sign paperwork for you. You know, they don't actually advise mm-hmm. you that much, like typically. Um, but uh, I got assigned to uh, this uh, pretty famous Chinese mathematician, um, uh, mm-hmm. Xing Tongyao. So, so he he won the Fields Medal uh, in the '80s or '70s or something uh, for. Um, work in uh, topology and geometry um and uh yeah so so what happened was again like, he was there kind of to just sign papers essentially uh but uh i so to do my time off i wrote this paper on um this surprising connection between uh like classical uh, learning theory like kind of like pack or the like, vc dimension that kind of thing uh, but the, the, the surprising connection to uh, algebraic topology. So, like uh, in the gist, essentially, like VC dimension, which is like a fundamental notion of how hard it is to learn some, you know, hidden function, uh, can be like recovered in some sense as the I guess like uh, the highest dimension of any non-trivial hole in some topological space that's associated to the problem. Uh, that's in the gist. Like that's you know, there's a, a lot of information packing that in that sentence. So you might need to digest that that like in a, for for a few minutes. But but the point is that there's like this kind of weird but interesting connection. And I wrote a paper about it. So when I came back, I showed that to uh, Yao, my advisor at the time. And I, I guess like he was like he really liked it or something because then he would like invite me to his house and like you know all this like parties and stuff that's like fun. that. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And um, and then at, at the end of the semester, like I was uh, interviewing Google at the time, but he, he asked me like, where where are you going from here? I told him about that, and then he's like, no, 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 you go to you go to Microsoft. And then he he put me in touch with uh, Harry Shum, who was uh, the like executive vice president of like research or something at that mm-hmm. point. Um, and uh, and then Harry Shum put me in touch with like Jennifer Chase, who was the uh, lab director in uh, MSR New England. Uh, and then she put me in touch with Mike Freeman, who was the director of Station Q at the time. So like he was doing uh, like quantum, uh, topological quantum computing research for MSR. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, Mike is another field medalist uh, kind of in, in that era of the 1980s or so. And he, he got it for uh, work on Poincaré conjecture. And uh, I think it just like, you know, for various reasons, probably because, you know, we're both kind of like a hard kind of topologist working in computing. And also uh, he's a super chill dude and I'm a super chill dude. And I think we just like each other a lot uh, at first sight. And um, yeah, so we just got along really well. And I showed him paper too, and he really liked it uh, for one reason or another. And then he just essentially went back to Harry and be like, yeah, you should just hire this guy. <laughs> uh and and that's that's pretty much how uh, i got my position uh in msr today uh so yeah i just i just moved to msr after that and then yeah that's that's that like that's that's five years <laughs> wow what a story that's also a really interesting connection you made there with topology and vc dimension i know there's been some other work on generally trying to connect neural networks to topological manifolds i think chris ola did something on this a while back and my understanding was that didn't really go anywhere and kind of broke down when you started looking at larger networks. Yeah. But 
Yeah. It was um, a really interesting hypothesis to look at. We spent some time on on your background, which was really fun to learn about. I'd love for us to jump forward sure. and maybe start talking about the work you've been doing since 2019, I believe, yeah. on the Tensor Programs Framework. Yeah, I do want to break this down into, I guess, maybe two parts. Yeah. And I think those two parts are going to be, you know, really just the greatest hits of the first few papers you released on Tensor Programs. Yeah. And then we can go ahead and give you some time to talk about this exciting new transfer work you've been doing recently. Great. But let's let's start at the beginning there. Yeah. So how did uh, Tensor Programs come about? In that period, like 2018, 2019 or so, I was looking at, yeah, like random initialization of new networks, especially deep new networks. So, so during that time, you know, there were few works from like my friends at Google, for example, and Stanford uh, that that looked at like, you know, principal ways of uh, initializing, random initializing your new network so that, you know, it, it makes the training stable, especially for really deep networks. And there was some really cool uh, kind of theory going on there. Uh, but but the approach was kind of like a theoretical, sorry, a physics kind of approach where like they, they do things semi-rigorously. Um, so, so I mean, I think like the, the assumptions, some assumptions are, are kind of a, uh, reasonable but like it's also kind of funny in some way because like mathematically it's really strange um so i was trying to convince myself that like this all the calculations that they were doing can be made rigorous and um so so initially i was just kind of you know trying to look for proof uh like to to make a make all this insight rigorous and yeah then the epiphany there was that uh you can you can make everything rigorous if you do a kind of inductive reasoning, where essentially you break all of deep learning down, or all, you know a neural network down into just uh, building blocks of matrix multiplication and corner-wise nonlinearities, and uh, and given this kind of uh, decomposition, uh, you can just kind of inductively reason over uh, what happens. Uh, when you do matrix multiplication and what happens when you apply nonlinearities and so on and so forth. Um, so so now like all this you know very complicated problem of like oh maybe you have a ResNet or maybe you have a MLP or maybe you have a transformer. You know like this this question now just boils down to like the very fundamental is just matrix multiplication and nonlinearities. And this allows us to uh, you know to, to to reason about things in a universal way uh, and uh, kind of do it once and for all, right? So again, the insight here is that like all this complexity of deep learning is really in the end just two elements in some sense, matrix multiplication, nonlinearities, which really like you know, as, as I'm saying, it should just sound obvious to you, right? You should be like, oh, Greg is mm -hmm. just like saying trivial things, like that should be your reaction. Um, mm -hmm. But the, but the non-trivial thing is that like you know, given given such a decomposition, right? Essentially, like it's like a low level low level language that uh, you compile PyTorch down to in some sense. But but the the, the non-trivial thing is that uh, when you have this low-level representation, there's like this inductive way of understanding what happens when the, the the width of the network becomes large, All right? And uh, and this is kind of like a set of calculations you can do uh, in an inductive way. Um, so so yeah. So so put everything back together. This gives us you know formal proof of all of the. Uh, things that you know uh, that my friends and I have been doing in a semi-rigorous way, um, and so so we were able to put you know all this uh, you know initialization scheme research on a on a sort of footing, and this in fact includes you know the the early works by uh, you know Glora and Bengio and by you know Kaminghu and others on like the mm -hmm. Glora initialization or the Kamin initialization, and it's they all kind of use some kind of heuristics to. Uh, make some semi-rigorous calculations that uh, now, like by boiling things down to this low-level form, we can justify rigor rigorously. Uh, and mm -hmm. and this low-level language of you know matrix location and nonlinearities is essentially tensor programs. Um, uh, so so that's like kind of the, the key insight here. And uh, and the in the yeah the twenty nineteen January I think January twenty nineteen paper. Uh, of uh, like I think there's scaling limits of new, large neural networks or something like that. That's that was the title of that paper. So I essentially laid out all the all my thoughts on that. Um, and uh, but but like I said, you know, like at, at that point, I guess I'm I'm still kind of relatively 
young and green. And uh, I did not focus too much on my presentation skills. So, so it was uh, not as, as well written as you would like it to be. And I think, um, yeah, people had a hard time kind of digesting uh, the insights from that. So, so I, I realized that it's very important to really you know, make sure uh, it's easy to understand uh, and digest. So I kind of took some time in the next uh, year or so to um, rewrite uh, this, this one paper and also refine the results a little bit on the way uh, into individual chunks. So, so that, from that comes um, what Tensor Programs 1, which was uh, the part from the original paper about how, okay, yeah, we have this like, you know, I, I, like I said, the motivation was initialization schemes, but really like now you have this like really expressive language for expressing essentially anything in deep learning, right? Any architecture. So in particular, like the, the really famous uh, neural network uh, Gaussian process correspondence, which says that, you know, at least like initially it was like for simple neural networks, you know, if you initialize it in a certain way, then when the network width becomes very large, the, the neural network, the random neural network uh, function has a distribution that looks like a Gaussian process, right? That's that's what the mm. correspondence says. And uh, Refer Neo... Before we continue, for readers who might not be familiar, can you um, maybe just give a one-sentence summary of what a Gaussian process is? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So a Gaussian process, uh, uh, you can think of it just like a really large multivariate Gaussian distribution, right? So 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 one, vari one univariate Gaussian is like in you know, this bell-shaped you know, uh, density curve. Uh, multivariate is kind of like... Instead of you know plotting a density on one D, you have a density on a high dimensional plane or space, right? And mm -hmm. uh, a Gaussian process, you can think of it just as like a really really high dimensional uh, multivariate distribution. And in particular, we like to think of um, like 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 extremely large multivariate uh, 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 Gaussians, where the each dimension uh, of this underlying space. Uh, corresponds to like a you know like a point in some uh, line, for example. So, uh, so, so for example, um, we can consider um, a, a a a distribution of functions on a line, and. Uh, we can give it a Gaussian process or like a high-dimensional multivariate Gaussian structure by uh, enforcing that like the the uh, function value uh, on each point on the line has a uh, marginal distribution that looks like a multivariate Gaussian. Yeah, so perhaps like, you know, uh, it'd be better if we have visual tools for explanation, but uh, hopefully, hopefully that, that gives you some intuition. What I can add some links to our description for yeah. for listeners who might be interested. Great. So yeah, for 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 just performance one, we essentially I essentially took the part of the original paper about how like this insight about new network Gaussian process correspondence or NNGP correspondence, how that can be extended automatically to essentially all architectures in deep learning. Right. So now you you upgrade this uh, simple observation on simple neural networks to all kinds of like, you know, neural networks that, you know, we might not even have seen just now, like even might be some future architecture as well. And and now this this theorem holds for all past and future uh, architectures. So this is a very, very powerful uh, insight. And, uh, and, and, one, and one particular reason that I separate this part out is that this can be proved uh, using a um, kind of a small subset of tensor programs. So, so what I mean by that is that, you know, if you think about it like a tensor program as a language, like a programming language of some sort, then uh, to really get this result about uh, neural network Gaussian process correspondence, you only need uh, actually a subset of the instructions in the programming language. So you don't need the whole power of it in some sense. So this was especially convenient to kind of teach some of the basics of uh, tensor programs uh, and the theoretical counterpart to that. Uh, so, so that's why I, I took that. Uh, out and and make it made it uh, TP one, and um, yeah. Then next, I continue to kind of focus on like pedagogy, but but uh, but this time I took essentially another result from the original paper, which is about neurotangent kernel. I'll, I'll explain a little bit about neurotangent kernel in a second, 
but uh, but mm-hmm. but essentially in this part, like there's like a similar kind of correspondence of two partial processes, but like now to this other object called new tangent kernel, and but this also this is uses this result uses like slightly more tensor one. So coming from TP one, you're kind of using a little bit more, and this is good for teaching uh, what what TP is about. Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about you know what new tangent kernel is for for the mm-hmm. listeners who may not know. But the, the key uh, idea in this area is that, well, you know, a priori, like neural networks are re- this like really complicated mess uh, that has, you know, nonlinear components and linear components. And it's kind of just hard, very hard to understand. But uh, it turns out if you like, if you look at a really large neural network in terms of the width, the number, the, the number of neurons. So you, if you look at a particularly uh, a new network with a particular large number of neurons, and you scale it in a certain way, then the new network can actually become like linear in the parameters. Okay, so so I'm not saying linear in the input, but I'm saying linear in the parameters. So the, the function is still a nonlinear function in the input, but it can become a linear function in the parameters. So in particular, this means that the evolution of the neural network during training can be vastly simplified. Mm-hmm. And this is a very appealing for you know theoretical reasons because this now lets us prove many like optimization and even generalization results about neural networks in this particular regime. Mm-hmm. And this relates to you know I guess the ordinary kernel trick that many people might be familiar with from their from their machine learning classes. That's where the name comes from in part. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so t- to tie that uh, all together, uh, this linearization is just like. Uh, Essentially, you, you tailor expand the neural network around its initial weights, and like intuitively, right? If you use small enough learning rate, then uh, you know this tailor expansion is quite valid. The non-trivial insight here is that you can make the learning rate small in some sense, and be able to like optimize the training set to zero training loss or arbitrarily small training loss. So this is kind of the non-trivial thing, right? Because yeah, you can make the learning rate small, but maybe you can't actually like, move that far to optimize the, the, the training set. But, but it turns out you can do both. So this is kind of the very, very interesting aspect of a neural tangent kernel. And this was uh, proposed by Chikoda. The, this term and the idea probably earliest was Chikoda. Maybe there were early ones, but uh, I guess I'm not actually aware uh, of any. But but there's a, little, a, lot of, a couple papers in those years around that time that also kind of came upon the same kind of reasoning uh, from possibly different angles, but, but NTK is a term that's stuck. So coming back to tensor programs in TB2, essentially the, the point is that, oh yeah, this thing, this new exciting idea actually applies to all architectures because we can kind of encode uh, all of the, the insight uh, behind this in tensor programs. It's, you can just write a program, you can write, you can calculate the NTK in the program and that's pretty much it. Uh, just, I mean, you can express it and then you're done. So as you can see already, you know, like the, just the expressivity of the low-level language is actually already quite powerful and can can just kind of do it, do something once and for all and be done with it instead of like doing one paper for every architecture, which make, you mm-hmm. know, you can, you can, you can like, you know, have a good career on that, I guess. But, uh, you know, if you can do it once and for all, then why not? So that brings us to TP3, which I'll, I'll, I'll be very brief. So TP3 is like the, the mm-hmm. last paper that kind of rewrites the original and uh, focus on pedagogy. But here the, the payoff or reading a paper is that it kind of um, gives a new proof of some classical laws in uh, this mathematical area called random matrix theory, which is, you can think of it like, you know, some kind of a, a central limit theorem or low large numbers, but for matrices. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it also gives you some new results like like computing the or justifying the the computation of the singular value distribution of Jacobian of a randomly initialized neural network. Okay, that, that was a mouthful, but uh, it's, it's essentially just some nonlinear random matrix uh, singular values. Okay, mm-hmm. but but the most important thing about this is that this actually the main pedagogy purpose here is to write down kind of all of the foundation theoretical foundation that actually need. For later papers, doing the feature learning limit in TB4 and then the new transfer uh, in TB5. Mm-hmm. So, so in my mind, like TB3 is like actually one of the most important papers, even though from a machine learning perspective, is not well. I'm not. I didn't sell it you know, as a machine learning tool uh, at the time. 
but but mathematically that's the really the the most uh important like bedrock uh for autocom mm -hmm. yeah makes sense so, so that so those were the kind of the, the foundation papers and then tb4 and tb5 i just like went further from there and like get you like new things i probably didn't realize we could do before yeah yeah let's get into those and i think that you know, one to three really were, as you said, the bedrock of this fascinating research program. And it seems like at first it was definitely an exercise in, in theory building, right? You wanted to develop out this tensor program's language and really work on its expressivity to the point where you could start saying really interesting things about modern neural networks. And finally in four and five, we start to see some payoff for practitioners. And I think it was a really, really fascinating set of results. So you had some results regarding how parameterization affects the ability of neural networks to learn features at all. You derive this maximal update parameterization or mu parameterization, right? That allows for something you call maximal feature learning for essentially all of the layers in a network to actually update themselves and learn features once you initialize in this way. And then finally, in five, we get this massive payoff of being able to take optimal hyperparameters for a small network and directly apply, apply it to a large network. I'd love for you to maybe just tell me a little bit about what the most important things, I guess, for you in, in those two papers were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so really, in fact, you know, TP4, I realized that you know, you can do TP4 like very early on. You know, like I said, you know, if you recall, uh, the initial motivation for tensor programs were, was kind of like try to understand the initialization on your networks. But like once you derive like, uh, oh, this is low level program language, you, you realize, oh shit, like I can actually write the whole training inside of this program, like, not just initialization. And and from there on, it's like, you know, it's, it's quite straightforward to realize that you can do all of the things in TP4, which was, to like understand how parameterization affects the limit of large new networks before and after training. And, and I think this is like by itself, like this particular insight that I can just write any program, including training and inference inside this language of tensor programs, and then take the limit after that. This is like a very, very powerful insight. And, you know, so far we're only just using a very small fraction of the power of that. Uh, but in, in TB4, right, so in TB4, what we did was to essentially look at and unify all of the past literatures so far on large new network limits. So if you recall, you know, earlier we were talking about new network and Gaussian process correspondence. So you can think of that as a particular kind of limit where roughly speaking, like in, in the limit, you, you take the learning rate of the body network, go to, to zero, and then the learning rate for the head of the network, head of the network to something non-zero. So effectively in the limit, you're just training the last layer. Uh, so that's that kind of like corresponds to the Gaussian process limit uh, when you talk about training and inference. And, and recall, we also talked about the neural network uh, tangent kernel correspondence earlier. And this is another kind of limit essentially where yeah, essentially, like if you recall the, the intuition, like kind of linearize in your network and in certain kind of parameterization, certain way of taking the limit, this linearization gives you something non-trivial actually. And, uh, and and this is a particular kind of limit, right? But it turns out, uh, you know, we not only have these two kinds of limits, but like entire space of limits and kind of entire space of worlds of large networks, so to speak. And the natural question to ask is, you know, you know, if I were to train, actually train a large neural network, like which kind of parameterization should I use? And uh, we answered that question in a very, I think, definitive kind of way. So we essentially just like look at, oh, this is like the whole picture uh, of the space of parameterizations and their limits. And we can actually kind of partition them into like not interesting or interesting, but not that good. Or like, this is good, but this is even better. So, so as an example, if you, if you picture the space in your head, like most of the space is like garbage, like in the sense that like in the limit, the neural network kind of either blows up during training or uh, it just gets stuck in initialization and it doesn't mm -hmm. move. Okay. So, so they're just garbage limits. You don't want to take them at all. But like within this, like, you know, sea of garbage, there's like an oasis in, in the space. And 
you can think of it, you can imagine like a party top of some sort. And in this oasis, most of the limits, they're more interesting to take, uh, but they're uh, what we call kernel limits. So, so for example, if you remember the, the, the Gaussian process and the new tangent kernel thing we talked about before, right? Uh, these kind of limits are, are what we call kernel limits because essentially like the evolution of new network is governed by some, some e- uh, equation involving a kernel and then the function. So, like, so in short, if you know like differential equation, you can think of like the function evolution in the function space is like a linear evolution equation with the, involving this kernel. Around 2018, 2019, there was a lot of a lot of excitement about this kind of limits because, like, a priori, this neural network is such a like complicated beast, and bam, like all of a sudden, it's just linear. Wow, like it's so simple. Right. And there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm about like studying this kind of limit, and it turns out like, this limit, like, in fact, this kind of kernel limit. If you remember that picture again, like you know, a sea of garbage, and there's like an oasis in the middle of it. Then this kind of kernel limit actually occupies most of this oasis. But if you look very carefully, there's a remaining like I guess like a, a coast uh, of the oasis, like kind of two sections of the coast that intersect in a point that actually corresponds to parameterizations or limits that learn features. So so you know so so far we talk about this uh, kernel limits kernel regime mm-hmm. um so these limits have the have the property that they don't learn features in the sense that like essentially the representation of any input like they don't really change over the course of training and uh this is kind of bad for obvious reasons well like first you know like from the early days like you know deep learning was promoted as a way to automatically learn features mm-hmm. and if you're not actually learning features in this limit i mean what are you doing second these days, right, like, you know, BERT, GP3, like these large language models are already hot. And one thing we like to do with them is fine tuning. Like we, we like to pre-train, you know, a new network on some large data, general data set. And then we fine tune on some specific data set that we're interested in. But it turns out like, if you're in the kernel regime, then like pre-training is kind of actually useless. Like if you, uh, even if you pre-train, fine tuning something in the kernel regime would be like just fine tuning a randomly initialized new network. So like you would have wasted your money pre-training if you were in the kernel regime. So, so these are kind of like obviously bad properties about this kernel limit, even though theoretically they're all so simple, so satisfying. Oh man, this, this complicated thing is linear. But like in, in practice, there are like very strong reasons to dislike them. And okay, now let's go back to this coast of feature learning parameterizations or limits that we're talking about. Again, the picture is a sea of garbage. There's an oasis in the middle. And there's like two sections of the coast that intersect in one point. Mm-hmm. That gives you feature learning, which is you know which w- which is what we want when we really talk about like pre-training and fine-tuning because you want you want the features to be learned during pre-training mm-hmm. so that during fine-tuning gives you something uh, non-trivial. And it turns out that like there's a simple way of thinking about the section of uh, feature learning. So remember like th- this is two sections of the coast and that they intersect in one point. This one point is essentially maximal update parameterization or MUP that. I guess we maybe briefly mentioned uh, earlier in this conversation, but essentially there's a simple characterization of this this coast, which is that for any point or any parameterization or limit that is not mu p but in the feature learning regime, then the difference between that parameterization and mu p is just that in the limit, uh, some layer is not learned, or in other words, like the learning rate kind of like is is decays to zero effectively. Uh, in the infinite width limit compared to MEP, where MEP doesn't do that. Okay, mm-hmm. So so in that sense, kind of like it's quite obvious that in this strip of the coast, MUP has to be kind of the best one because everybody, everybody else just like does something obviously suboptimal in some parameter. So going back to, uh, I guess, the, the original motivation here, like we, uh, you know, we, we knew there were these kind of different limits like Gaussian process, new tangent kernel. But now like all of a sudden we can understand like this whole space uh, of limits, like all, all possible ways of making your neural network large and how do you uh, how do you uh, scale their hyperparameters uh, like learning rate and initialization uh, as you scale them. Mm-hmm. And and there's one kind of very obvious optimal parameterization or way of scaling your neural network, which is maximum of the parameterization or MUP. And uh, if you remember, like I had a leading question earlier, which is, you know, if I were to actually train a large neural network, 
how should I, or which kind of parameterization should I, should I use? Like, you know, if, if I'm training larger and larger, I'm essentially tending to some kind of limit, right? So which limit do I want to land on when I actually take this to be extremely large? Mm-hmm. And from this picture that I painted you, a sea of garbage, and then there's an oasis in the middle, and then there's a coast where there's essentially one point that's like really golden and the other ones are suboptimal in some obvious way. But from this picture, it's very obvious that this golden point, this mean parameterization should be the, the right parameterization, right? To, to, to take your uh, large model in. And, uh, you know, theoretically we say more in TB4. So, you know, this, this is, um, like I said, it's a maximal update. So it kind of like, yeah, learns all the layers, uh, equally in some sense. And it has like some really nice theoretical properties. And in fact, we can like evaluate, we can actually cal- compute the infinite width limit exactly for certain things like word to vec and uh, like some meta learning tasks uh, with uh, two layer linear models. Uh, and we can show that, wow, like uh, this, this uh, infinite width limit actually does better than finding new networks, mm-hmm. which is great and it verifies all the theories that we've done. But okay, returning to the, the original question of you know, if I train a large model, what parameterization should I use, right? The, 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 the obvious thing from this paper would be that you should use mu p. Mm-hmm. But now the question is, okay, uh, but how do I know that, like, I would do better? Like, in what ways do I know that I would do better if I use mu p? Now that goes, that kind of leads us to TP5. And the realization was that if you really have the right parameterization, then you should preserve some really essential properties coarse properties of the neural network as you vary the size of the, of the neural network. And conversely, if you're in a bad parameterization, you should be like distorting certain essential properties as you change the size of the model. So in particular, like what coarse properties are worthwhile to consider? Well, uh, hyperparameters, for example, because, you know, in particular, because tuning hyperparameters for large neural networks is quite difficult and annoying. Uh, even impossible if, you know, it's so large that you can only train it once. So that's essentially like how we kind of came upon this idea of hyperparameter transfer. It's the belief that mu p is the correct parameterization. And how do we show that it's correct? Because it can preserve these essential properties uh, of new networks, uh, even as you vary the size of the new network. And this mm-hmm. includes, you know, optimal hyperparameters. Right. And you did some experiments with this sort of actually taking parameters from, you know, a smaller model. I think in your paper, you went from a 40 million to a 6.7 billion parameter model and managed to confirm those results. You know, I'm really curious in terms of actually taking this and expanding it further. It seems like this large model paradigm that we've entered is really just going to keep going farther and farther. The networks we're seeing today are just getting stupidly, stupidly large. I'm curious if from the perspective of your framework, you see any potential issues arising. So for example, if you were to now go from a 6.7 billion parameter model to a 670 billion parameter model, making you know another 100x jump, do you have any intuition on what kinds of issues might arise in that next jump that, that didn't come up initially? Yeah, uh, so that's a pretty good question. So uh, as an example, maybe something you worry about would be, you know, emergent behavior that, you know, is possibly malicious, but we can't anticipate ahead of time. And I mean, and we have examples of these emergent behaviors, for example, in like uh, arithmetic uh, capabilities from just language models, right? Like they're not trained explicitly on arithmetic, but they somehow learned it from all this internet text that it was trained on. So, so yeah, I really like this question, and I think at the moment, I I think the 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 answer is no. I don't think we can say anything concrete about this kind of uh, thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would like to kind of take a step back and kind of think about like what's the right way of looking at this question. So, so for this, I I, I like to use this analogy of um, with with chemistry of the notion of intensive versus extensive properties. Mm-hmm. So in chemistry, you know, you, you might have some material or like, you know, let's say you have a jar of water, right? So I- intensive property of water is something that you know, doesn't depend on how, on how much water you have, right? Whereas extensive means that it changes as you change the quantity of that material. Mm-hmm. So, so intensive property includes stuff like, you know, boiling point, melting point. It can include like density, viscosity, uh, these kind of things. Where extensive, you know, 
obviously includes like volume, mass, uh, these kind of thing. Also like entropy, internal energy, that kind of thing. So, so in this analogy, intensive uh, for neural networks would be properties that vary or or converges very fast with size. Whereas extensive would be things that don't converge very fast, uh, where like you know can be can arise unexpectedly uh, mm-hmm. when the size you know becomes large. Uh, so, so you know this these kind of emergent behaviors are extensive properties. Like they they don't appear when the size is small. They they take a very large size to for you to, for us to actually see them happening. Whereas you know from our work, the TP five paper, you know we we see that you know with mu p like the optimal hyperparameters converge actually quite quickly, right? Like the forty million parameter model is able to uh, we can essentially measure the optimal hyperparameters on that forty million parameter model, uh, and that is still as as far as we can see like optimal for the six point seven billion parameter model. Mm-hmm. And the question here is, you know, what kind of properties can we expect to be intensive in a sense, like that converges fast with the model size, so that we can predict the corresponding property of the large neural network from a measurement of the small neural network, right? And you know, our work shows that there's there exists at least one that's super useful uh, when you actually train them. But like, how, how do we characterize the set of properties? And furthermore, like you know, is 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 it possible that we can like change kind of a perspective in our head or to kind of change a change of basis in some sense uh, to to make a a priori extensive property into an intensive one. Mm-hmm. So maybe you know like you know all this emergent behavior of doing arithmetic seems kind of emergent from our perspective, but maybe just because we're kind of taking the wrong limit in some sense. Like if we change the parameterization, we change our perspective, maybe it will become uh, intensive. Just like how you know if you were looking at optimal hyperparameters in the NTK parameterization or standard parameterization they will converge very, very slowly. And in fact, you probably may decay or explode to infinity. But if you change basis and change your, your perspective into mu p, then oh, all of a sudden, like this hyperparameter is stable, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the question is like, yeah, like, you know, how do we characterize intensive versus extensive? And like, is there a clean way, you know, is there, is there a way to, to assure us that like this extensive property is really extensive, or is it actually there's a change of perspective that makes it, you know, intensive, so such that we can uh, predict uh, these kind of behavior in large model from just small models. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I really liked the way you you broke it down there. I think that's an analogy I, I haven't quite heard before applied to this. But and I guess you know to to the question that I was asking too, and in many ways, as you said, these are. When we scale up these networks, things do emerge that we just couldn't anticipate. So in many ways, it is also just a, a very empirical question. I guess one one other thought that I had here, and this is maybe from the practitioner's perspective, and I think you spoke to this a little bit in TP5, was just about, you know, for practitioners often, especially when training really large neural networks on today's hardware, we do things like mixed precision training, right? You might need higher precision values for uh, certain operations like batch norm, taking statistics, all of that, then you might need for other operations. And I'm curious if any of that can kind of mess with some of the theoretical points that you've made in your papers. I know that in one of the sections, you actually spoke to this and said that you encountered numerical issues that led to frequent divergences. But I was wondering if you could speak to that just a little bit. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think this is like, like numerical precision is definitely, you know, going to affect uh, all this uh, theoretical properties and yeah so if you if you're not careful you can definitely um, you know run to diver- run into divergences uh, or like you know you can even have more subtle effects where like the numerical uh, precision distorts certain things in a very subtle way and you just kind of uh, make your make your training trajectory kind of like go off the trail in some sense so yeah I think it definitely pays to uh, in as a as a practitioner, pays to like observe the scale uh, of your activations and preactivations, and make sure they're not in like you know a range where like you you're losing a lot of precision. But but it's not you know it's it's, it's I think to solve a problem uh, for, at least from an engineering perspective, if you're just like you know adaptively uh, adjust your ranges and stuff like that, 
And uh, yeah, in our paper, we kind of like did the scientific thing where we we just went to a higher position to 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 do the experiments. But yeah, from an engineering perspective, this is just uh, it's a solvable problem, and we can you know there's still still like you know constant um, innovations in floating point format going on. And yeah, uh, like I think in the future, you know, uh, you know, as as we go larger and larger, if the floating point format evolves with it, yeah, we're not gonna see a huge problem. Of course, you know, for the people who whose job depends on it, it's gonna be you know a, a, a problem that's worthwhile investigating and spend a lot of effort on. But for our, our you know us mortals, uh, we kind of just use whatever that comes out Nvidia or you know whatever, and they typically do a good job of um, adjusting the formats and. Uh, the, the, the folks training large models and know about these kind of problems. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think you won't be a huge problem in the future. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I guess it definitely does take time and iteration, you know, on both the, the hardware side and the side of people actually using it. So mm-hmm. I think just maybe as a final question before we sign off here, you're in this very interesting domain that I think is looking at you know, the theoretical side of deep learning and also actually taking that and finding empirical insights, things in practice. And there's been a lot of thought put into this idea of the role of theory in deep learning. I think, you know, it's often said that theory lags far behind practice, that deep learning is an area where you kind of just try stuff, you figure out that it works, and then you come up with a reason why afterwards. And there have been, you know, many attempts at maybe formalizing deep learning. There was the information bottleneck theory. We've seen some really exciting papers recently about phenomena in deep learning, like deep double descent or grokking, where, you know, you just take a network, you train it into a regime where when it's overparameterized, it, of course, overfits, but then you just keep training it and it actually loses that aspect of overfitting and starts to perform better. And... I'm curious what your thoughts are really being deep in this space about this theory practice gap, the fact that there are just so many interesting properties of the generalization of large neural networks that really just don't fit with classical intuition and the fact that we really just don't understand why these things are happening. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, I mean, so there, there, there are several aspects to this gap. Uh, between theory and practice, and you know, so like for example, some like one thing, one aspect that echoes uh, what you said is like in theory, people are concerned with these like really interesting scientific questions, which you know it's not clear whether they ha- they are interesting from a practical point of view. Uh, and the second question, which is related, is that you know like th- th- like does theory have kind of a predictive power, a sufficient predictive power? For practitioners to to use to you know to like actually profit off of, in some sense, like versus you know like versus like the the null hypothesis, which is that you know any every everything like theorist figures out like the empirist already has like pretty solid you know intuitive understanding of it. They just didn't write it up in in this fancy language, you know. So so that's these are like kind of two aspects of this particular question. Um, and my, my point of view, I mean, I, I think everybody has different point of view on this and I have a particular point of view and I'm saying, I'm not saying this is objectively the correct point of view, but, uh, at least for my research perspective and trajectory, I think my kind of guideline for thinking about this question is you need to pick your battles for, for theory. If you want theory to give, to, to guide, kind of guide the, the field of deep learning and then to have like practical and empirical impact and and the reason you get to pick your battle is because in certain areas like empirical research is like is faster like you just you can just do like you know like a ten thousand experiments and you know just get the results in a day and I'll, bam you know the results like that's it you know and where but where theory pro- like is really impactful and has a lot of leverage is in where you can't do so much experience so this includes in you know, large-scale deep learning where you know training GPT three is you know is you have to prepare for many months and you know you have to you have to think very carefully beforehand and it, it takes several months to train it as well. So uh, so this is an area where like it's very critical to get everything right as much as possible. And this is where you know theory can help a lot. So so you know you can compare this to maybe like launching a space shuttle, right? So you, you can't launch a space shuttle without knowing gravity. Like you have to plan your trajectory somehow, mm-hmm. and if you don't know gravity, you can't you know plan for that. 
and 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 you know like space shuttle is so expensive that you know it doesn't makes no sense at all to try and error your way into mars right and this is we're in a similar kind of um regime here with this kind of large scale deep learning it's just that everything's so expensive that you need to like really carefully think about your choices beforehand and doing experiments is you know it's doable but it's just like super expensive and slow that when you have uh, theoretical insights, it's, it's often like a very high leverage, right? So, so in, in particular, if you think about the economics here, theoretical insight has this, you know, in, in its purest form, it has this uh, characteristic of being like flat in cost as you vary the problem size. So like theoretical insight costs the same, like, you know, like five cups of coffee, you know, like three meals or whatever, uh, you know, for, for either like CFAR 10 or, you know, GPT-3. So, but, but C410, you know, like you can also do the same experiment for like $5 electricity, like for 10,000 experiments, and you can get the results much faster. So why would you, you know, why should you compete uh, against empirical insights in this case, right? So, so really like the, the, the leverage is in areas where you cannot do experiments. And, uh, and, and that, you know, TP5 in particular, mu transfer is an example uh, of this intersection of uh, theoretical insight applied to a uh, large scale training. But I mean, similar insights also apply to other areas. Like, for example, like if you want to prove a negative result, like you show that there's a barrier to something, that's only something that's something that only theory can do. Like, I mean, I guess you can like kind of try to probe that some boundary with the empirical things, but like in general, that's it's very hard to do to show a negative result. And, you know, cryptography, for example, is a very excellent uh, example of this. This is like where you know, theory shows you you essentially there's just asymmetry between the you know the attacker and the message the, the the I guess the encryption applier, and like based on some you know complexity assumption you you can't break it right. And this is an area where theory really excels. If you want to guarantee something, you, you want to guarantee that like somebody can't do this, then that's essentially that's some something that the only theory can do. So security related applications, I think this is an excellent area. Uh, for for theory to apply their leverage, but but yeah, again, like my point is that you know you have to a theory has so much potential to affect the field, the future, the trajectory of this field, but somehow, at least from my perspective, it seems like people are looking at the wrong places for this. Uh, they're just looking at problems that are too small, or they're not looking at you know like like places where like you know security guarantees are are essential. Now, of course, you know, like there's also many people just look for interesting problems to work on. Uh, you know, maybe a yeah, double descent, I think, yeah, it's like in principle, it's kind of interesting. But in practice, it's like, yeah, I don't know if it's actually like that relevant, uh, at least from my point of view. Mm-hmm. But that's fine. You know, as a research, like, you know, research, the research field is very diverse and we'll come like everybody of different uh, thought processes of, of uh, what's interesting. And uh, the diversity is, you know, definitely a plus for, for our community. Uh, and that's that's totally fine. But but if you're if you're wondering about the question of why have we not seen like huge impact from theory uh, in 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 the empirics of deep learning, why does theory lag behind you know practice by by such a large margin? Then I think the answer is just that people from theory are not looking in the right places for the right problems to solve. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I love the way you kind of broke it down there, and that there are some places where it's really appropriate to think about applying theory and where it can have its maximal impact. You know, Justin, I think the regime you're working in where we want to train these massive models where it's just not financially feasible, where it extracts a pretty big environmental cost to even train them once. If I remember right, the figures for training GPT-3 were something on the order of $10 million for just, you know, the final training run. And that's not even accounting for the fact that they have to do a lot of experimentation beforehand. And so, as you said, making that analogy to landing on the moon or something like that, you really, it really is a lot more high stakes and it makes sense to bring in theory there. I love the way you put that. I think that's really the, the summary of questions that I had there. And unless you know there's anything, any other thoughts you want to leave us with, Greg, I did want to say thank you again for appearing on the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, man. Yeah, this is a really great experience. Yeah. 
uh, hope to come back at some other point. <laughs> We'd love to have you back. And, you know, in the meantime, where can our audience learn more about you and, and about your research? I guess you can go to my homepage in the MSR. Um, I guess you can just search for Greg Yang MSR and you will land on my homepage. And mostly they're just a kind of guide to what's been happening in the Tensorgram series. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can, you can uh, if you're interested in using MUP in your models, you can do a pip install MUP, uh, MUP is MUP. Uh, and you can, there's also a GitHub repo for that uh, you can check out. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that's it. And uh, you know, people feel free to email me, uh, Greg Yang at Microsoft.com, about anything you want to discuss, any questions you have. Yeah, happy to chat. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Greg. I'll make sure to include a link to your homepage and to the uh, MUP repo for our listeners who might want to take a look. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you like this episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. See you in the next one.